the conversation around co-buying, co-ownership, whether it's investing, buying with family, buying with friends, has come up a lot in the last few years. And that's probably due to the fact that real estate prices are rising. But I think it is also in large part the fact that, well, people are becoming more creative about who they buy real estate with. And so for that reason, we've also seen a lot of missteps over the years when it comes to co-buying contracts or not having any contracts in place. So we seeked out and we found a lawyer, his name is Dylan Taylor, to come and join us on the episode today and talk about specifically some of the pitfalls of not having a co-buying agreement, why you should actually have one, and what it represents. Now, uh, before you move forward on this episode, I have to say that this is some valuable information and I don't think enough people really think about this. So whether you are a end user, a client, a real estate agent, or someone else, have a listen and I hope you enjoy this episode with Dylan. Before we go any further, as always, these episodes are presented by the team at Thrive Mortgage Co., your mortgage financing experts. Now, we're thankful to be recognized in the industry as some of the best in the space. And if you want to work with us, make sure to check out our website, thrivemortgage.ca, Instagram at Thrive Mortgage Co. And of course, if you're loving the episode, leave us a great review. Thanks. Enjoy the episode. What's up, guys? You are listening to the YBR Remo Show, where we talk all things Vancouver real estate and mortgages, take boring topics, and make them interesting. Make sure to stay tuned to listen to everything you need to know how to put cash back in your pocket, create wealth in real estate, and simplify the complicated. All right, Dylan here from uh, Victoria, actually, Victoria, British Columbia. Beautiful, beautiful spot on the West Coast, almost as far west as you could possibly go. Here today to talk about co-ownership agreements. And I know what you're thinking. What the heck is a co-ownership agreement? What does this have to do with real estate? What does this have to do with investing? What does this have to do with making money? Well, uh, probably has more to do with protecting yourself and not losing money to start with. But if you're looking to buy with someone, if you're looking to invest in real estate at any point in your career or life, uh, you're going to need to have either a co-ownership or joint venture. There's other names for this type of agreement. So we found the guy, uh, Dylan, over on uh, Vancouver Island, and he can help you wherever you are, so don't worry. And he's here to talk to you, to us today about what these agreements are and help us to understand and break these down so you guys understand this in a non-boring way. Right, Dylan? Yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly it. At least that's the goal, right? Co-ownership agreement is is worth its weight in gold, right? It's that written agreement that's, that's going to codify that that relationship among the parties, right? Always a, a good idea to uh, spell out the potential what-if situations that can arise and and uh, and address those, right? right? Right at the start. The reason this is, uh, I think, an important conversation to have, not just now, but anytime particularly, is and Dean and Derek and I, are the partners here at Thrive, have been talking a lot lately. We're seeing a lot of divorces. And now we're not talking about prenuptial agreements here, but we're seeing divorces where there's other parties involved, another brother or a sister or an uncle or a cousin. And so, you know, these can get pretty ugly. We don't know who's getting what amount of money, where things are going, but we'll get into that a little bit later. So let's just do the basics here. Let's get into the Coles notes here. Dylan, um, talk to us a little bit about uh, like, I guess, what is a co-ownership agreement to your understanding? How do you explain to someone? And really like who who's looking for co-ownership agreements that you're talking to these days? We'll start off with the what what is a co-ownership agreement? The co-ownership agreement 
is a written agreement. It, it codifies the relationships to best protect all the parties and and not just that that asset property, right? This agreement it, it addresses kind of the responsibilities, the prevents and resolves disputes in order to avoid the expensive kind of litigation portion of it, right? And the people who are are generally entering into these agreements. And, and it is going to depend on the on the situation, but the standard examples would be, you know, the the parent child, the the siblings, close friends, or even business partners um, who are coming together for this this one, uh, you know, purchase. I can talk to this just personally having a co ownership agreement with my family. I'd say like the biggest value I see from it is just maintaining the relationship I have with my with my parents like I live in a in on a property with my parents we share the property and have our own dwellings but um just to your point like just outlining what is actually who's responsible for what and and uh you know if something happens here's what the you know the solution is like predefined um solutions and and agreements are, I think are so important just to honestly save our relationship I don't want to go into a a, a co-ownership type living arrangement if you know if the risk is not having a relationship with my parents and and those are things that can happen and then like to alex's point you know seeing divorces and whatnot that are tied to other family members one of the biggest uh regrets i've heard from any any client that's gone through a situation where they didn't have an agreement was well now i no longer talk to my uncle or i no longer talk to my father and like that to me is just there nothing is worth that just to to do a real estate transaction so getting this stuff on paper isn't so much to be like, hey, we have this in writing, I'm going to hold you to it. It's more so there's that component of it. But it's also just like, let's maintain our, our agreements together and, and make sure it's clear. Because a lot of times when you verbalize agreements, somebody hears it differently than the other person. And it's just the way you know, humans communicate verbally, we don't always interpret or hear things the same way. And I find just having it in writing just makes it very crystal clear. And nobody really has a, a point to, you know, quote unquote, bitch or argue about the situation when it escalates. Yeah, I completely agree, right? You're you're setting the rules, you're putting everything on the table, there's not going to be that awkwardness between the yeah. parties, right? And these are tough conversations to have, especially with your parents or, or someone who's super close to you, right? And it gets, you know, rid of that, that awkwardness. Um, and it's a similar situation in all those Loose, it's kind of related, but you know, when someone dies, I recently had a death in the family. My my grandmother died, and you know, the the three daughters were all on the the will, and there was absolutely no consensus or no one taking charge, and no one know what happens, and that's how uh, these relationships break down, right? Yeah, it's a good point, and um, yeah, I mean, just like that that alone, it's like okay, there's one form of an exit strategy, and then you know, the amount of ways that you may want to exit an agreement such as selling the property or, or, Hey, something happens where somebody no longer can afford their portion, like having clearly defined, Hey, here's how we're going to exit is, uh, is so important. And again, those conversations, yeah, they suck. They're not, they're not fun to have, but why not have it before you even pull the deal together? So then you can realize like, Hey, this is not for us. <laughs> that conversation yeah. is going to be way less awkward than the one when you're actually having to deal with selling the asset or making the, you know, a tough decision. Now you can just, you know, have that tough conversation before actually pulling the trigger. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. And I don't know if either of you have ever been to court, right. But it's not a very fun place to, to air your grievances. Right. Oh. Um, and that's going to ruin relationships, right. If you're pulling your, your son or, or daughter or, whoever to court in order to try and sell a property that you bought together when you're really happy. It's it's not going to end well, generally speaking. Yeah, for sure. No, 
<laughs> doesn't sound like a good situation. No. So like, let's talk about this in practicality because I mean, I think we, I mean, generally speaking, you guys have gone, uh, uh, Dean gave a good explanation of to his situation and what's going on there. And we could talk about some use case scenarios to where we see it, but I mean, um, just kind of step by step, if we're thinking about, you know, someone, let's just talk about the situation where someone is buying with a family member, right? So they're walking in, they're going to buy with dad, mom, brother, sister, uncle, and something like that. Like that's really, really common. You know, how do you even start this process uh, without, without the technical legal side of things? Like how do you typically start the process? What are the things that someone really needs to start thinking about as they consider entering into an agreement like this? Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, how the, the process kind of starts is we'll get a call and they're, you know, they tell us that they're going to be entering into a transaction to purchase a, a piece of property, right? And at that point, you need to find out who the owners are going to be and and who's going to go on title. And and generally, it's it's probably the the, the child or someone who who is calling, right? If it's going to be that situation that says, "Hey, you know, my parents are coming on title. This is how it's going to look like," right? And at that point. You know, that's when you need as a lawyer um, in real estate, you want to bring up that discussion right away. Right. Hey, have you thought about co-ownership agreements? Do you know how they work? Right. Um, because as we know, uh, it's super important to enter into. So that's kind of how the in that situation that would come up rather than two people coming together to buy something together. Um, but that does come up as well. Just a question. Awesome. I think. Sorry, I'll just jump in with a quick question in regards to like the difference of a co-ownership agreement versus say a joint venture agreement. So where we have, you know, two two clients that are are not related, but looking to maybe buy an investment property, they, their mind may go to, hey, I need to get a JV agreement in place. Is that, mm -hmm. would would that be something similar, would you say, say in, in regards to like buying that asset? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, I mean, virtually the same thing, right? It's just, you're, you're jointly going in on maybe a certain thing for uh, with a view to profit, right? And then you're going to be setting out all the all the terms and how that's going to operate. Um, that's generally how that works. It's more of a contractual JV joint venture, and and yeah. So I there, I don't really you know practically speaking see a lot of difference between the two. Okay, that's what I figured. So looking out through the uh, co-ownership agreement, I mean, we're talking about parents, we're talking about family members in many circumstances. I don't know if it's issues, but what are the most common things that people perceive to be the case or misconceptions around uh, how a co-ownership agreement works and the value of having it? Why does somebody not do this? Like, why wouldn't they go and get a, a, a co-ownership agreement? Is that a fair question? Yeah, that, yeah, that yeah, that totally makes sense to me, you know, and, and I think people probably think, you know, it's all really interesting. Thanks for bringing a co-ownership agreement to my attention. But, you know, I'm going to have no issues with my friend. I'm going to have no issues with my family. You know, we're just going to agree down the road, right? We're going to push that off. We'll just agree down the road. It won't be a problem. Well, I think there's a reason why the courts uh, say specifically that an agreement to agree is not an agreement at all. It's not enforceable. It means absolutely nothing, right? So, I think, yeah, and and buying property, you're entering into these. It's not a it's not a cheap uh, endeavor, right? So I think people are trying to cost cut at, at at certain times, right? And just you know, we'll kick that down the road. We'll deal with it when it comes up, and we're all just going to agree, right? But you won't really have any procedures or legal procedures if the co-owner, the other co-owner, doesn't uphold their end of the bargain, right? So I think that's the the main thing, and that's one of the risks with going in without a co-ownership agreement. I think people, a lot of people's mindset at this point in time is kind of similar to like uh, an insurance policy that protects their mortgage for life or disability. It's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. It's not tangible. It's not really exciting. And the transaction at hand is what's exciting. And they get caught up in that excitement. 
Um, but going further to that point, so, you know, maybe they're not thinking it's important or maybe that, you know, on the flip side, they're actually thinking like, you know what? No, this is important. Let's put some bullets together. Let's put an email together of like, here's the things that are important to us. Here's what we're agreeing on. And, and maybe they, they have good intentions to go forward with a co-ownership agreement, but they finish that email off thinking like, you know what, this is enough. Like, this is enough for us. We're just going to agree on these bullets in this email and, and Bob's your uncle move forward. Is that, is that even something that can hold up in court? Like just a simple email agreement between people? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, is it important to actually formalize that into a co-ownership agreement? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it, I think it's important to formalize everything into a co-ownership agreement. Right. And yeah, I mean, if you're going to be going to court, then you're going to be bringing in a different additional evidence, right. And and trying to make your point instead of just having it nice and clear in a one pager document that could be right. A nice mm -hmm. simple one. Um, so I think, I think that's, that's important, you know, at the end of the day. Cool. So, so like, I mean, we touched a little bit on the reasons why people aren't going ahead and doing this, but Let's talk about situations like, for example, when it comes to an investment property. Like, I don't know if you're at your firm or or if you're in your office to have conversations with people who are looking to buy a property as an investment. Do you have people who talk about the division of assets? Like, for example, like, hey, if I sell this property, here, here's when I can sell this property in five years or three years or seven years, or here's how much profit I get, or here's how much income that you receive. Obviously, I'm just generalizing here when yeah. I'm saying this, but what does that look like? And how do you start those conversations? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it happens all the time where people come in and they're buying for, you know, in Victoria, it's a it's a nice market, you know, you can make some money if you go into it, right? So we definitely have tons of clients who come in and, and are investing with, you know, somebody, a business partner, or even a friend, right, that, that they have uh, that agreement with. Um, and there's, and generally in those situations, I find is that it's mostly one of them kind of upping more of the cash at the beginning, right? And, and I don't know, and and then they're going to figure out down the road. And sometimes you can do like on legal title, you can do an uneven distribution as well, right? It doesn't have to be 50-50. It can be 80-20. It can be whatever you want it to be, right? It can be 90-10 if, if someone's bringing that all in, right? But there's a there's a difference in at law um, between the actual legal title and the true beneficial ownership of the property, right? So just because you put in all the money doesn't even necessarily you're going to get that all back, right? If there can be a make a solid argument that, you know, I put a lot of work into this property and I got it to here. So that's why you want this written out, right? You know, on the distribution of the, the sale proceeds, A, goes to, you know, the person who brought in the initial cash investment and then the balance can be split or something like that, right? Yeah, I mean, that point right there, the one you just touched on right there, which is most people assume, hey, I brought the down payment, you brought the the qualification. In this case, mm -hmm. you know, I brought $100,000, you qualified for the property. So when the property is sold, I think that I should get, you know, $100,000 back plus my version of the equity in the property. That's implied by most people in, in my conversations. And what I'm hearing you say is that's not reality when it comes to law. Someone could argue that and say, I went in there and spent time and energy renovating it or something of that nature, or, or my name being on there is valuable. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. Right. You know, um, if you're, let's say I'm handling the sale of the property, you're in my office and we're looking at the sheet of, you know, we've paid off all the liabilities. We have this money, this pool of money at the end of the day. If there's no agreement between the parties, I can't release those funds, right? I'm going to have to hold them in trust, potentially even pay them into court or to a litigation lawyer. Right. So, um, 
yeah, I mean, people can make all sorts of different arguments, whether they're valid or they're going to hold up at the end of the day is, is a determination of the courts. But why get there, right? It's pretty simple. It's it's one paragraph that says, hey, this is what's going to happen if it's sold, right? And and then it's looked after. Well, it's such a good point because you can't you can't understate the the significance of the person bringing the borrowing power, right? A lot of, especially in this market where we're, you know, rates are high and it's hard to qualify. I and mean, we've seen our borrowing power get reduced significantly because of these rate increases and the individual that's bringing, you know, uh, so let's say a $700,000 qualification and the other individuals is bringing the down payment. I mean, that qualification of 700K is arguably as important as the dollar value of the dollars going into the deal. Um, so I think it's so important that this is written out like that one paragraph may be um, one of the most important pieces of that of that document. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is right. So just kind of, uh, yeah, it just documenting those expectations is what it comes back to again, right? It just makes everything so much smoother. But there's so many other details that you need to kind of get into, right? Such as, you know, the mortgage payments, utilities, property taxes, you know, potential strata fees, any repairs, all that stuff, you know, insurance even on the property. Um, who's going to pay that? And what if what if one of the the co owners is living in it, right? And and now they're living in it. You know, as you, if anyone's had renters before, you know that they're going to, you know, be maybe, uh, you know, there's going to be some maintenance and stuff that's going to be required pretty much at their hands, right? So, is it fair now for the other owner to have to pay for the other fifty percent of that? Maybe, mm. but maybe not. Yeah, all really good points there, uh, Dylan, and I appreciate bringing that up there. I mean, I think uh, one one thing comes to mind here that I was just ripping through some notes on this. And um, to your point, not necessarily about renters, but like, let's say, OK, I'll give you an example. I have a client right now who's in this uh, tenancy agreement or no, sorry, they don't have a tenancy agreement, but they're in a relationship right now with two two siblings. And so there's three owners on the property and two of the owners have uh, taken on a pretty substantial amount of debt. Uh, the one owner wants to leverage some of the equity to go and buy a home for himself, but the other two put him in a position where he just simply can't do that. And so the question then begs, can he now go and say, okay, now I would like to enter an agreement based on you know the past looking forward? Like, is this something that someone can come up to you and say, hey, I really want to enter an agreement now retroactively in a way? Or how would that work? What would that look like for someone? Yeah, like absolutely. Yeah, you, you can enter into the agreement whenever. It's obviously recommended to do it beforehand, before actual completion and before the money switches hands because it's going to be easier to get agreement of the other co-owners before you know that happens. Um, but after there's nothing stopping you for afterwards, right? I mean, maybe you have a tight turnaround and you just want to get it closed and then enter that. If everyone's on the same page, that's fine. But there's no agreement if there's no meeting of the minds. So to force someone to the table after it's happened is going to be a lot more challenging. Yeah, I would say so. And, you know, truth be told in his situation, like, I, I think that, uh, you know, it was, there was a rocky beginning for that reason. It is family. And there was a lot of emotions. And to your point, I mean, Dean, you know, is, in your family's relationship probably saved your relationship or could save your relationship. Mm. I think in this case, he's very fortunate that there's some level heads around him to help him out. But, you know, it's something that could have been dealt with immediately by looking up a piece of paper and saying, okay, we got to come to terms with this is reality. And now this has been dragging on for quite literally months with no resolution, right? So months of his life where he's wanted to obviously make a move or just exit the the uh, agreement, get out of there, sell the property, whatever, he's kind of held back. So, I mean, I don't want it to make it sound like obviously owning real estate with someone is a bad thing. So more and more and more, like the most common trends that we see in real estate is people buying with family, buying with friends, like two couples buying houses together is super common. We're seeing a lot of that. 
specifically in Vancouver uh, area where detached homes are, you know, $2 million plus, right? Like one person will take the top half, one person will take the bottom half. Uh, so that begs, you know, the question, what, like, I guess, how do they start the conversation around who owns what part of the house? Is that common? Like, is there a conversation where it's like, hey, I live upstairs, you live downstairs, or is that something that would come up? And how does that work? Yeah, I think the the living situation can definitely be brought up, right? Because that leads to, you know, uh, what if, you know, it's it's siblings or something going into a property and neither of them are married, neither of them have a, a partner, and then maybe they want to bring one in, right? And what's that going to look like and, and all sorts of stuff. So I don't know if we actually uh, cut out a portion of the house that says, hey, this portion's yours, this portion's yours, and, you know, we can share the, the kitchen between certain times. I don't think it gets into that, but... Um, it is important, I think, to uh, to set you know the ground rules and and what's going to happen, right? And another conversation, which is kind of interesting, is what happens if you know there's an accident, someone loses mental capacity, right? Does now you know like is the if there's a power of attorney, they just step into their shoes and now they get to do everything that that other person did? Well, maybe you don't want that person making the decision. So, I think you know if someone dies uh, and the beneficiaries, do they get the house now and there's just all sorts of things that you can kind of go into a little bit more detail on and, and try and comb out, right? It's just, mm-hmm. these are things people don't like to think about, right? But they're reality and they happen, you know, every now and then for sure. I mean, death is obviously a tough discussion, but it's probably, I mean, just what, what you just said is so that can be very complicated in that situation. Um, but even further from that, like, as an example, you know, one sibling is buying with their parents as an example. And let's say, you know, the parents get in an accident or the parents die of old age or what have you. Um, they may have a will, right? And a portion of that, their their real estate asset is going to go to all siblings. Well, if the sibling that bought the home with that, that you know, those parents, if there's no co-ownership agreement, they could be forced to sell their home because their sibling wants their portion of the of the inheritance. And so if there isn't a very clearly defined ownership agreement and percentages, you know, we're, we're there, I can guarantee you that those siblings are going to start fighting on how to how to chop mm-hmm. this up. And and now the person, you know, the, the individual that actually bought the home is living in the home, has established their family, may have to sell because they have no other choice. Um, but if they had this agreement in place, like that exit strategy around death and and this situation would have been clearly defined and and in a lot of cases would have saved the uh, the asset. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. And especially if they uh, they go on title, right? They go on title as not joint tenants. So there's no right of survivorship. It's just the two of them as, as separate uh, entities, right? And now, you know, mom or dad passes, it goes to whoever the executor is. Maybe that's a different sibling. Maybe it's someone else. They can go on title. Now they can force the, the sale if there's no co-ownership agreement, right? And you can... Yeah. And if it's a 50-50% ownership based on that law, we, we can get into um the the sale will be forced on the open market yeah hmm. yeah right that's ugly you don't want to see yeah. that very much yeah and, and so no. i think uh, like this again i'll circle back on this the reason this conversation is so important in this day and time is well i mean we just went through three years of uh, a life-changing situation and people obviously <clears throat> reevaluate their lives substantially and i think most people are realizing that like first of all they don't live in the same host house for like 30 years like people used to like it's typically like five to 10 years max sort of situation. And like I said before, a second, like the cost of ownership is just so different than it used to be. And so we do see more people like, you know, purchasing together and so forth. Hey, what's the what's the general cost uh, for someone to set something like this up, like a, a, a standard agreement, you know, obviously assuming there's no uh, extraordinary circumstances? 
Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, like a super basic one is as little as $500. Right. Um, and can go up from there, you know, um, to around a couple thousand really, if you're getting really into it, but they're not a, a huge expense for how much, you know, a property costs or how much, you know, um, certain things could be right. Yeah. I mean, million dollar home, 500 bucks to make sure that you're protected seems pretty yeah. reasonable. Sorry, Dean, go ahead. Yeah, I usually budget like with our clients, I usually budget around 1000 to 1500 just because I find, um, you know, as you get more in depth, as you try to, you know, cover more items, that's where the cost goes up. But um, again, whether it's 500 or 2000, I mean, it's a very small, uh, small price to pay in the grand scheme of things. And I, I, I always just go back to saving the relationship is, is when with family is probably the most important thing. And um, yeah, you can't really put a price on that. Nobody wants to lose their uh, their, their key relationship with their, their close family members. Yeah. I, I mean, I completely agree. And, and I, I you know, we're talking about this and it, it, we're not trying to be negative, I don't think. Right. But these are just things that you want to discuss and you want to bring to the table. Right. And, you know, people buy and sell property all the time, but uh, I think having this makes everything just, just way better, way happier. Right. So. Uh, yeah. Man, like, it's not about being negative. It's uh, about re being realistic. Yeah. <laughs> Protecting yourself. I think, we're just doing it. It's no different. Like, hey, we talk to people about like getting their their uh, financial situation under control, right? Like, uh, uh, you know, understandably, and uh, you know, looking at your doing a deep dive into where you spend your money, looking at your credit, looking at those types of things. It's not about being negative. It doesn't feel good to to dig into that and say, hey, I made a mistake. But it's like, hey, this is just a reality. Let's just protect you for for moving forward and set you up for success. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, I think one of the questions that we we were going to discuss today was just like, what are the risks in doing a co-ownership agreement? And like, to me, like, the answer is clearly not doing it. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. that, to me, I mean, so as much as this sounds like a scare tactic or or what or this is negative, it's it's really not. It's just like a really positive discussion, in my opinion, because these things are so easy to put together. Um, they're they're pretty inexpensive, and and the benefits of having one are just so so far outweigh the benefits of not having one. Yeah, I, 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 I can. Yeah, me too. Um, the risks going without it, right? Yeah. There you go. There you go. Everything you need to know about co-ownership agreements and the value of having it, uh, Mr. Dylan here can advise you on. So Dylan, uh, really appreciate you popping on, my friend. We'll put up all your information, your contact information in the uh, the YouTube channel. If you guys don't know, check us out there. Obviously, the podcast below. Give Dylan a follow on Instagram as well, because I know he's on there. That's where we connected. And uh, I know he'd be happy to help you out and, and uh, get your family set up for success or your investment set up for success when it comes to co-ownership agreements. Thanks for joining us today, my friend. Awesome. Thank you both very much.